Our text this morning is from Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. You will find this passage on page 984 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jordan. We have this sermon today and then a sermon next week, and we'll be done with Colossians. This summer, uh, we'll be going through the I Am statements of Jesus and John, so that'll be a fun time together, I hope. Allow me, before we jump into the topic of vocation as it relates to our identity in Christ, to pray for us. Father in heaven, we live in this world in so many different roles, and I pray that as we have been discussing from your scripture what it means to have our identity founded in Jesus Christ, that you would continue over time to shape us into Christians who go out into the world and live in that place as hard as it may be for your name, in your name, to the glory of your name. And so I pray as as inadequate as my words will be this morning that this passage of scripture would, by the power of the Spirit, inspire us, motivate us, empower us to go out and live for Christ in the places that we work. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So if we think about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the founder of our faith, Jesus had a very specific view of work and money. I think what we have to understand that when we think about work and our culture, it has to do with money. It's, It's one of the reasons we work is to make money. And so Jesus, I think it's important to start this morning understanding where he stood on these things. Now, first of all, Jesus was a carpenter before he was an itinerant preacher traveling, preaching the gospel that he had been sent to earth as the son of God. He was a carpenter. He had a profession. And so we have to understand that Jesus was not anti-work. Jesus was not anti-money. But he had, again, a very specific idea of what these things were founded on. To Jesus, work and money were both experiences that were guided by eternal principles. And we can see this is how we've been talking in Colossians. We have an identity. We have this foundation, and our lives are built on that. And so when it comes to work, when it comes to money, Jesus had the same idea. We have eternal realities. The the experience of working, the experience of earning and having money is built on these things. So a couple examples. Uh, Matthew 6 from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how Jesus talks about our possessions. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And here is the the statement, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've said this many times from the pulpit here, but, but Jesus is not saying, give me all your money. Jesus doesn't want our money. He wants what? Our hearts. He wants the thing below it. He wants the thing below it. And so Colossians is expressing this truth that was given by our Savior, by our God, Jesus. And if you remember, what does it say about our identity? Don't focus on the things of earth. Focus on the things above. This is that same thing, bringing the foundational principle into the forefront. We're to live and work and, and lead our lives from that idea, from a heart for eternity. And now Jesus, what he is teaching essentially is a kingdom of self-denial for a better outcome. Again, from Matthew, listen to this, Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow me, Jesus says, let him deny himself. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here's the famous saying, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Our lives, as we've seen again through this Identity in Christ conversation, our lives are defined by the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and his future return. Our life in between those two events is defined by those events. And so Jesus, knowing the human heart, knowing it better than any person ever, knows that we are tempted to do what? Build a kingdom for ourselves here. He knows that. And while we build this kingdom for ourselves, what do we do? Inevitably, we lose sight of the priority of these eternal realities. This passage this morning, just a couple of verses, almost a tag on to what we've been talking about, but it's bringing that same very practical tone that we saw last week, but it's bringing it to work, bringing it to vocation, bringing it to our work life, and it's putting our work life in the light of eternal realities. If you're wondering, kind of a spoiler alert, (laughs) um, if you're wondering what the foundational principle here is, you can see it four times in this passage. It's in verse 22, it's in verse 23, it's in verse 24, and it's in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. It says, Fearing the Lord, as for the Lord, you're serving the Lord, knowing that you have a master in heaven. We are called to work in this life. When we have work, when we have vocation, we're called to do it, not for other people, not in a response to other people, but for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. And so, like in the home, our calling, since it's based on Jesus, this applies to any situation. So having a good boss or a bad boss having a Christian boss or a non-Christian boss, whether you work in the home or outside the home, whether you, you are blue-collar or white-collar, whether you are the bosses watching or not. We'll get to that later. We are called by Christ to work as Christ calls us to work. We work for the Lord first. Bringing this idea into our context, it's the same context that we talked about last week with marriage. Remember we talked about how this word submit becomes an ugly word when it's in the context of power struggle. Remember where we saw where the power struggle came from? Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve together chose their own path, their own mission, what entered their relationship? 
power struggle. Who's in charge here? And I believe, church, we live in a world where power struggle is the conversation that we have about every part of our lives, especially work, especially marriage, especially relationships. Our society is looking, our secular society is looking at everything through this lens of power struggle. And in case you're wondering, this is what critical theory is. If you've heard those two words, critical theory is the the ideology that everything is a power struggle. And so the answer to power struggle is to change the power struggle, okay? And I always think of uh, a band, OK Go. Uh, You may not know them, but they have a song that says in the, in the bridge, we solved all our problems with bigger problems. And if you want to solve the problem of power struggle with more power struggle, you're just going to solve your problems with bigger problems. The only answer to this cause of, of, of uh, sin that brought power struggle, the only answer is not reordering the power struggle, not at your workplace, not in your home. The remedy to the sin-based power struggle that we experience in this world is only the healing of Jesus Christ. Only the healing of Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, his future return, these are the things that, that undo the division that we experience. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope when it comes to these ideas. And so, what have we seen in this whole series on identity? The gospel, what does it do? It defines our life here in the church amongst each other. I think that's not, there's not a lot of resistance to that idea. Certainly, we are to deal with one another as brothers and sisters based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to take that gospel, it's supposed to define our internal lives as well. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our deeds defined by our identity in Jesus Christ. We're to take that identity out into the world. We're to take that identity and let it define our roles in the home. And today we're going to see that the gospel, our identity in Christ, defines our actions, our attitudes in the workplace. So as we look at this passage... Um, the ESV does a, a, a wonderful thing, and in that first word, bond servants, it's a great choice. I'm going to talk about that. But if you have any other version of the Bible, that first word could be a derailing word. The first word in your translation is slaves. Okay, slaves. And so allow me to give you a 30-second history of slavery in the Bible. Um, I'll, somebody time me. I don't know if I'm actually going to be 30 seconds. It's going to be very quick. Um, in fact, in the, in the Pew Bible, you don't have to go there. In the preface of the Pew Bible we have here, there's a great paragraph on this Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which could be interpreted slave or servant or bondservant. And so you, the people interpreting the Greek into English have to take a lot into account. So let me give you just an overview of that. First, in the Old Testament, In the Old Testament, there was slavery. You could enter slavery either voluntarily or involuntarily. You would enter slavery voluntarily if you had a, uh, to escape poverty. So if you had no means by which you could support you or your family, you could enter this, this employment situation where you had a master or if you had to pay off debt. There's, There's several other reasons, but those are the kinds of things you would do to enter slavery voluntarily. Or you could have been also an involuntary slave. Either you were captured in battle, you were born into it, or it was a a judgment by a judge. You owed somebody money, so you had to go and work for them in that capacity. But what we have to understand is that in the Mosaic Law, there was always protection for those people. 
The, the way we think about slavery in our context as Americans, and we think about our past and how slavery was, the Bible never promotes that. The Bible protects p- protection for people, care for people, compassion for people. And so we have that as a foundation on this idea of slavery, but now we come into the New Testament and we have this word doulos. And here I'm so thankful that the ESV translation has gone with bondservant because uh, the context here is this is someone who is bound to service to their master for a specific period of time, but this person could also own property. They could achieve social achievement. They could have a role and a reputation in society. They could be released or purchase their own freedom. So this is not the kind of slavery that we think of when we hear the word slavery. This is something different. And in fact, if you think about the things that, that define the idea of bondservant, it very easily transitions into modern employment. <laughs> we have a job description. We, we have an agreement to do this job for a certain length of time, for a certain amount of money. We can own property. We can do these things. And so, really, we're not talking about the, this, this awful, heinous sin called slavery. We're talking about, really, generic employment is what this passage is about. And so, slave really is kind of a, a distraction here. Bondservant, I'm thankful, is the ESV translation. I think it's more accurate. And so, as we look at this and we see this first word, obey, we're talking about Basically, a job description, an agreed upon job description. When it says obey, it doesn't mean in, in everything. It means within the context of the job that you have been hired to do. Do that job. Do that job for the length of time you agreed, for the pay you agreed to do it. And so, as we look at this passage and look how it, it speaks into our modern work scenarios, that was much more than 30 seconds, I'm sure. Um, There are some ways we have to conduct ourselves if our identity is in Christ. And Christian, that is true of all of us. So let's get into the passage. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. This is the first condition. This is the first command. Do not give eye service. This has to do with only working when the boss is around. I think Steve Pink told me a job where, told me a story about when he was on the job uh, for his dad. His dad was a mason, and, and the workers there didn't know that his dad was in charge. And when the, he, they saw his dad driving up the driveway towards the job, they'd say, quick, get to work, right? They were working already, but they really kicked it up when Steve's dad would show up. And so this is not what the way Christians are meant to, to execute their jobs. We're to work our job all the time to the full extent. This next one is more complex than we think. It says, not by way of eye service and not as people pleasers. I want us to think a little more complex than just pleasing our boss. Think about all the people that we work with in our different vocations. We have, we have certainly uh, employers, we have clients, we have coworkers, but we also have ourselves. We have ourselves. Christian, we are not called to work as if any of those people are more important to us than God. Our employer is not our God. Our clients are not our God. Our coworkers are not our God. We are not our God. And so we are to not work in our place of work for the satisfaction, the personal satisfaction of those around us. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, 
talks about this idea. Now, we know for a fact that if we try to work to please our boss, that, is a, that can destroy our souls. <laughs> that can destroy our souls. Even if we try to please our coworkers or our clients, this is, I think many pastors fall into this trap. They try to become people pleasers. And imagine if, if the person preaching or the person doing the work at church tries to make every single person happy in every way, that's impossible. And I think about those of you staying at home, being homemakers with children. Imagine what it would be like if you, you thought you were supposed to just please your children and everything. It would be insane. And I think maybe a lot of people are doing this because adults seem to be getting worse and worse. But this, it's, it's untenable. You can't do it. But even if we're working for ourselves, which I think is one of the trickiest ways that we become people pleasers, we think our job is really about me. We think my vocation's about me. We think about ourselves and our advancement. Tim Keller says, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment or self-realization slowly crushes a person. It crushes a person. To please ourselves, to please others, this is not right in the eyes of the Lord. This is not the way someone whose identity is founded in the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his return and is empowered by the Spirit. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We don't live for others anymore. We live for God. And so I think this, is, this has a lot of practical implications. When we follow the Lord... When we follow the Lord, it doesn't mean all the time, but sometimes we're going to displease others. We're going to displease others. Now, some people take this to the extreme and they think the more mad people are at them, the more faith they are to God. That's not what this is. This is when you are living your life based on your identity in Christ, you're going to have to do things that won't please other people. I think an easy example is when your boss asks you to do something morally wrong, lie, cheat, steal. As Christians... Although that might advance us in our career, whatever the, the, the good, quote unquote, consequences might be, if we are working for the Lord, that is off the table. We cannot do that. It gets trickier with morally gray areas. How much time should I spend at home versus at work? How much should I uh, do this or that? How, how should I uh, approach this person who's doing something against me? But we have to use Christian wisdom in those moments. And the bottom line is that Christian, we work as to the Lord and not as to others. At times, we'll have to choose family over work. It'll happen. At times, we'll have to choose to say no because we work for Christ over saying yes to something that is against that. And that's really what the next phrase is getting at. Not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. We are called as Christians to work with an honest and straightforward attitude. That means we are to work as Christians. <laughs> we, we shouldn't hide our Christianity and try to be just a good person. We are to work as Christians in the workplace. That's who we are. If our identity is in Christ, we must work as someone whose identity is in Christ. So verse 23 becomes really a summary phrase. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever we do, put your heart into your work. Work with full, genuine effort. Work with your whole redeemed being. And we'll talk more about this at the Lord's Supper, but think about the kind of work that Christ did for us. 
as a model for us, as someone who saved us, he didn't just work when, we were, when God was watching or wa- work when we thought he should work. Jesus Christ went all the way to the cross and beyond. And in fact, if you think about it, that's not what the disciples would have wanted. That's not what we have wanted. Uh, P- Peter says, may it never be. That's not how you should do this, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We're to work as for the Lord and not for men. We work not for our benefit. We don't work for the benefit of the company, the bottom dollar. We work for the Lord. We do it for him as he would do it. And so the the concept here, I think is pretty straightforward. Rather than working for earthly masters or working for ourselves, we are called to work for the Lord. And so the adjustment we need doesn't come from the old bootstrap, let's get this done. It comes from the gospel. And so verse 24 really helps us adjust where we need our focus, adjust our expectations. And this idea, it really redeems the purpose of work. The purpose of work isn't to get the project done. The purpose of work becomes eternally important. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And I love this. He stops the sentence and starts a new one. You are serving the Lord Christ. It is essential, church, to understand that the money we make, the reputation we build, the projects we complete, these things likely will dissolve at some point. (laughs) They will be gone. They'll be gone. That's discouraging. They'll be gone. The investment we make in earthly things the, the, the sum at the end is zero. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3. It's one of my favorite New Testament passages. It just kind of is a, a unique way of thinking about this, but it talks about how as Christians we have this foundation. The foundation is Christ. And on it, on this foundation, we build with either wood or hay or stone or gems or precious metals. And this is what it says about the work we build on the foundation of Christ. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, has, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only through fire. What is this talking about? It means as we work for eternity... As we make an investment, not in right now, but in the Lord, that will last for eternity. That is stone, according to the passage. Whatever we do for ourselves, whatever we do for earthly, temporary, reputation, you name it, it will burn up in the day, the day the Lord returns. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And as Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Everything that we do, Think about this, because I didn't plan on talking about this. Whatever I do as a pastor that is for now in the temporary will burn up. Do you see the difference? It's the same for me as it is for you. Whatever I do that's for my reputation or my wealth or my well-being or, or some kind of project that will only be here on the earth, it will burn up. Only what we do for Christ will last for eternity. Everything we do in the name of Jesus lasts forever. Anything we do for ourselves, what's it going to do? It blows away like ash. It blows away like ash. 
this idea that we are working for the Lord doesn't erase the meaning of our jobs. We're not called to just quit, okay? It's not what we're called to do. In fact, in Thessalonians, that was happening. People were like, well, I guess I shouldn't work at all. And Paul says, no, you need to work for food. That's how that works. You had to work. It doesn't erase the meaning. It actually adds meaning to our work. It adds purpose, eternal purpose to the things we do in every kind of vocation you can think of. In verse 25, Paul answers the question, and I think maybe some of you are asking it. Some of us have had truly awful employers in our day. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? And in fact, some scholars I was reading this week think that maybe there was um, some unrest in Colossae between the working class and the the leading class, and Paul is trying to, to bring some peace to that. But it says in verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Paul, again, is encouraging an eternal focus. Even in Colossae, where there's likely a focus on what? Power struggle. Who should be in charge? Who should have the right? Who should do what? Who should not do what? Paul's encouraging an eternal focus because what? Earthly justice isn't primary. Earthly justice isn't even really justice. What is primary for us, Christian? Do all things in the name of Christ. Our primary concern is the reputation and the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance waiting for us. We have true justice waiting for us at the return of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, because that's our identity, we don't have to demand our own, enact our own in this world. What? Our justice at best, let's just assume we're doing a really good job at justice that day. At best, it'll be a half measure. At worst, it'll be just another complete injustice. The only justice is the ones we find in Christ. And I think it's encouraging in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul basically says, listen, if it's unbearable, you're free to find another job. He says it. Uh, he says to 1 Corinthians 7, but if you can regain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You don't have to just sit under injustice. But we shouldn't lash out against it either. We work for the Lord. Paul finishes the idea here with a word for those who would be masters or leaders or employers. In verse 4-1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so the word goes out to those of you who fill places of authority in this world. You are in a place where you have the privilege to bring, again, the, the peace and the harmony of Christ to the world. Through your leadership, through Christ-centered leadership, in your place of work, you can share the gospel through your actions. If you're wanting more information on that, there's a great book by Ken Blanchard called Lead Like Jesus. Um, it's a book that's been around for a long time. I think it's been rewritten a couple times, but it's a great book on leadership in the workplace. Ken Blanchard is a, uh, was a uh, workplace leadership guy, and he became a Christian later in life, and he realized that a lot of the things that he had been teaching, man, they're in the Bible. They were there already. He didn't invent them. And so churches, we talk about vocation, There's all kinds of different things we do. We represent a lot of different places. And the key here, the bottom line is this. Our wealth, our advancement, our legacy, our personal reputation, none of these things 
can be our primary concern if we're a Christian. They can't be. If those things become a primary concern, we will be crushed by them. We'll be crushed by them. The late Tim Keller, I've already quoted him once today, but he has a great book on this idea of faith and work called Every Good Endeavor. And I'd like to just read, I think no one can say it better than Keller many times. I'd like to read just a a paragraph from that book to you. Everyone imagines accomplishing things. Everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten. Everyone wants to make a difference in life, but that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is a God. Unless there is a God. And if the God of the Bible exists, there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. That gives me chills to think about. Our calling, church, is not to figure out how we can best move up the ladder or how we can make the biggest difference with our work and our skills in the world. Our calling is to discover how to bring our identity in Christ to every interaction that we have. Every interaction. Not just in the church where it's safe to be a Christian, not just in the home, but in the workplace, in the world. We're called to bring the gospel wherever we go and apply it to everything we do. And so when it comes to work, how should we work? We should work as if there's a God that knows you, that loves you, that sees you. We should work as if Christ really died for sinners. That's a kind of a mind-bending concept. How do we work as if Christ died for sinners? We should work as if Christ really rose from the grave in power to redeem his people. We should work as if we are really in this transition uh, from that wrath that we deserved and then the cross and then this perfect eternity waiting for us in Jesus Christ. We should work as if the reputation of Christ is really what matters most and becoming who we already are in Jesus Christ is our calling in life. We should work as if God is sovereign in anything, work everything, work as if you are kept secure under the protection of Jesus Christ for eternity. And once again, I'm, I'm very thankful that we have the tradition here the calling, in fact, to have the Lord's Supper each week because here we have this tangible expression that can help us grasp this truth. What did Christ go through for us? It's important to understand when it comes to this word doulos, although we don't like this word slave, we are owned, we are owned by Jesus Christ. He's our master. It's not a contractual agreement. We don't have a job description. We are owned. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important this morning to remember what kind of master he is. Listen to Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of us may be in a place where some of those words, (laughs) heavy laden, labor, needing rest, the burden, they, they recall our time in our jobs, even right now, our time with our children, if we're in the home. And we must remember that we serve a gentle, lowly Savior who loves us, who died for us, who is with us, who nourishes us. We serve the most self-sacrificial master that's ever existed. He served us so that we might serve others. He saved us so that we might be free from the bondage of sin. He purchased us with a broken body and shed blood his own and from a lifetime of serving a truly awful master, sin and Satan. And so this morning as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, let's allow it to be a tangible reminder. A reminder of what Christ has done for us, the relief that that brings, and May it be a time where we are empowered and refreshed to go out and live for that same Christ. So this morning, who should come? Those who need to come. Those who say, I am burdened. I have a heavy burden. Not only my sin, but my life. And the only relief I can find is not in restructuring the power of my life, but in Jesus Christ alone. His body, his blood, his work on my behalf is the only thing that saves me. If you believe that to be true, you confess it with your mouth, you've been baptized, you are called to come and receive that rest this morning. If you reject those ideas that either Jesus Christ is who he says he is or he is Savior or that even he can offer you rest from your burdens, it doesn't make any sense to come and eat. Uh, It would just be a snack at that point. And that's not the point. And so we'd ask you, if that's where you are at, to abstain. The scriptures ask you to abstain and we'd ask that you respect that command. Let's take a moment. We're going to pray quietly for a few moments. We did not have a confession of sin this morning uh, corporately. Let's take a few moments. Let's Ask the Lord to reveal sins in our life. Let's confess the sin of self-reliance. And let's gather back together in a prayer together, a prayer of blessing and assurance of pardon. Father in heaven, spirit in the church and Jesus at the right hand, I pray in your name this morning that you would give us meaning for this supper, give us blessing for this supper, nourish us spiritually through this supper, cause us to have unity through this supper, give us courage 
Give us a reminder of just how you worked in this world and how you have called us to work for you and what a pleasure it is to do so. You are not a hard driving taskmaster. You are gentle and lowly. You give us rest. So even when things are difficult in this life, even when we come against our sin, we come against the sin of others, when we feel the stress of that power struggle in the world caused by sin, we have a Savior who has redeemed us, who has secured our salvation by his own payment, his own work, who holds for us an inheritance that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be pilfered, that cannot be lost, that does not diminish its value. He holds that in his power for us because of what he has done. We are in that system. We are given that thing, not because we've deserved it, because you earned it and you love us. And so we confess that we violate that gift hourly. We are sinners exacting our own plan, our own agenda in this world, and we sin against you, but Father, you are good, and you are just, and you are loving, and because of the blood of Christ, we are forgiven. Praise your name. May in the assurance of that pardon, may in the relief of your work, we come forward this morning and participate in your supper, made worthy by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.